Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. In this episode, I wanted to talk with you guys about communion, also known as the Eucharist, also known as the Lord's Supper. Now, there are plenty of deep dive kind of episodes, both both on my channel and with other sources that talk about specific topics in communion. I wanted to just give a kind of broad overview of a bunch of different topics. Uh, namely, what I wanted to talk about in bulk is how communion is done at your church or how communion is done at my parish or how it should be done according to the Bible. How, you know, what should, what should we do and what should we avoid? Those sorts of things. And a lot of times these things don't get talked about so much because they're kind of seen as secondary. And, and to a degree, there is a lot of Christian freedom in a lot of the ways that communion is practiced. Now, obviously, there are some things that are absolutely solid in Scripture. You've got the words of institution and things like that in Scripture, where it's like, you, you've got to do it the way God commanded. But there's other elements where, you know, you know there's Christian freedom. You say, well, I, I, I can't do that. I don't have a golden chalice. You know, I have these this other cup instead. Can I use this cup for communion? And again, in Christian freedom, yes, you're avail- you're able to use that that cup, but the, a lot of thought should still go into these things just because they're not explicitly laid out in scripture as prescriptions that you have to do it absolutely 100% this way no matter what. Just because they're not laid out like that doesn't mean that they're that they don't matter. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't think about what you're doing and be intentional about your communion practices. Now, communion is a very, very special thing that God gives us. Regardless of what you believe about it, it is instituted in the Bible. It is a promise from God. It is, it is something that God commands us to do, to partake in uh, as a church. So we need to take God's word seriously on this. If God take, takes this seriously, we need to as well. Now, a lot of this stuff is actually going to be based on Scripture. First Corinthians chapter eleven, in particular, is one of the best one of the best places in Scripture to kind of get an understanding understanding of communion. So I'll be referring back to First Corinthians chapter eleven a few times throughout this because it gives us kind of the best understanding of of communion practices. Now, there is one theme that I want to keep going on through this entire episode, and the theme is going to be this. How can we be as close to God's command as possible? How can we most faithfully, given our resources, follow God's command, God's intent? And I set this up as a contrast. We should not be asking, what can we get away with? What is still technically allowed, still technically falls under the umbrella of, uh, yeah, you could do that, but you shouldn't. So <laughs> that's not that's not the goal that you should have in mind. Our goal as Christians, we want to be faithful to Christ. How can we be as faithful to Christ as possible with regards to communion? What it is, what we do, how we celebrate it, things like that. So with that, I actually have a list of different topics that I was going to kind of breeze through here. We'll see if this is a 10-minute or an hour-long episode based on these uh, based on these topics. But I have a list of these things, uh, and they're kind of topics that, that come up, questions and statements and, and things that come up, um, and, I've, and I've addressed multiple times in the past. But I want to get it all in, in one place, and I would also like to hear you guys' feedback. Uh, if there's enough... Enough stuff that I miss here. I could do another episode. I could even do another episode maybe with somebody else in, in the second seat and we could discuss communion further. But this is just kind of a shallow sort of uh, broad introduction to communion practices. So first topic, let's get this one right out of the way in communion. Are you using wine or are you using grape juice? Wine or grape juice? What does the Bible say? Now, the Bible uses 
you know, terms like the fruit of the vine or oinos or something like that. And you can say, well, you know, that's, that, you know, grape juice is included in that. If you squish grapes, that's, that's grape juice. Now, that's, that's not exactly true. If you go to the store and you buy something called grape juice and it's got zero alcohol content in it whatsoever, what you have there is not just fresh pressed grapes, maybe, you know, uh, from, from 100% natural from concentrate. It's not just fresh, fresh pressed grapes. Actually, modern day grape juice is something that we can thank. Uh, there's, a, I believe he's a Presbyterian minister. His name is Thomas Bramwell Welch of Welch's Grape Juice. Um, and what he was trying to do is he tried to come up with a way to have communion wine without alcohol in it. And it turns out that the way you can get communion wine, you know, wine in air, air quotes, without alcohol is pasteurization. You can pasteurize fresh pressed, you know, grapes and prevent the fermentation process from continuing. The reality behind the science is, however, that the moment you start pressing grapes, that's wine. There's even, there's Latin terms, I talked about this in another video, there's Latin terms that refer to kind of new wine. The fermentation process has not gone on for very long. The alcohol content within these things is barely detectable, but what you have there is technically wine. Fresh pressed grapes yield wine, not grape juice as we understand it. The stuff you buy at the store that says grape juice is not what God commanded. In fact, it wasn't, it wasn't available at the time uh, at the time when God instituted this. You could no longer you could no more use grape juice in communion and faithfully follow God's commands than you can use grape jelly or grape soda or grape jello or grape I don't know, whatever other stuff you make, grape cough syrup. Just because it has grapes in it doesn't make it wine. God didn't just say, use stuff made from grapes to, uh, you know, to use in communion. That's, that, that, that's not what he said. He, he said, you know, he said to use wine. Well, okay. Uh, are there any instances in the Bible where we know for a fact that this is wine, that this is wine that has an alcohol content? Now, there is, again, I, I, I want to be clear here. The Bible doesn't prescribe a specific percentage of alcohol content. It's not like the Bible says it has to be fortified wine. You must use port. You must use a specific, a, a specific uh, type of wine. But I'm going to look here first to the Bible, which should be our foundation for understanding these things. Should be. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we, t we have Paul talking to the congregation of the Corinthians, and he's talking about their practices during communion. He's talking about what they're doing during communion. Now, see if this is something that could be accomplished if they were abusing grape juice. Let me find the particular verse. So he's talking with them about the Lord's Supper, and he's upset with them. Uh, let me see. Verse 17. Uh, must be factions among you. Nope. Okay, verse 20 and following. 1 Corinthians 11, 20 and following. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes on with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have, uh, who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Okay. So if nothing else from this specific verse, we can glean that they are taking the Lord's Supper and abusing it in such a way that people are getting drunk. People are not getting drunk off of grape juice. You can't get drunk off of grape juice. The pasteurization kills the, kills the, you know, stops the fermentation process, stops the alcohol production process. So, grape juice versus wine. It has to be wine. It must be wine. It does not have to be wine with a high alcohol content, but it must be wine. As I mentioned in other videos, uh, if this means, if you dilute the wine with water, 
you're still drinking wine. You're not making a new mixture, some new you know chemical concoction or whatever. It's it's wine diluted with water, which there is a historical precedent for. So you're not walking around drinking nothing but wine all day. Uh, back before you could drink, you know, before you could drink the water without getting sick, before we have all the, you know, all the nice fluoride in the water that keeps us safe, you would, you would drink, you would drink wine mixed with water. So you're not getting drunk, but you're still consuming water. That is an option. You can have wine mixed with water and you're still, you know, receiving the blood of Christ there. You can have wine with a small, a low alcohol content. This, this can be new wine. This can be wine that has not been fermented for very long. You can choose not to have fortified wine. You could actually even consume specifically the, um, the amount of wine that you believe that you can tolerate. If, for example, the, the, your pastor, your priest, they have a, a chalice of wine, you don't have to gulp down the whole thing. You can, you can sip and drink some wine. So if your concern is, well, you know, I have reasons, medical reasons or uh, reasons based on, based on addiction or any, any other sort of legitimate concerns you have, uh, why I cannot have alcohol, why I cannot have alcoholic wine, do these things actually prevent you from having the smallest amount of wine diluted in water? Is that actually something that's preventing you? Or is this more of an excuse that you're using to, to do something other than what God commanded? Now, if for some, for some reason you've got such a condition that you cannot receive wine in any amount, in any amount, it's not a curse for you not to receive the Lord's Supper. There are some people who cannot eat and cannot drink. There are some people who are in hospital beds who are incapable of consuming the Lord's Supper. God has not cursed them because they're not able to receive the Lord's Supper. Truly, the Lord's Supper is a blessing, and if you are able to receive it, you should receive it with joy and thanksgiving as often as you can, rightly. But if for some reason or another you cannot receive it, do not let your conscience be troubled. God does not curse you for being unable to receive the Lord's Supper. Don't worry about it. Do things the right way. And if you can't do things the right way, in this case, you don't you don't have to participate. You can receive a blessing from the pastor or the priest, and, and that'll be with you. So there you go. Wine versus grape juice. Grape juice is not an option. Wine alone is what God commands for the liquid form of the sacrament. Not not what. So if there's any Mormons listening, water is not <laughs> acceptable either. Uh, they do they do water and bread, if I understand right. Okay. So this leads on to the next question: the bread element, the bread element in the Lord's Supper, bread versus gluten free bread. This is a tough one. It's 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 even more difficult, I would say, than the concept of wine versus grape juice. Because what is what is bread? Is bread anything made from wheat? Is something made from, say, barley? Is that bread too? Can you can you make bread from potatoes? What about rice? Can you make can you make bread? How many grains can be in your bread? Seven grain, twelve grain, whatever. Like there are a thousand different things that we refer to as that we refer to as bread. And it gets even more complicated because we don't have this definitive thing where, okay, Thomas Bramwell Welch invents grape juice. But in terms of bread, we have so many different things that we call bread, non-bread. There's this bread in Africa that they use. Um, I forget where it is in Africa. You can get it at some restaurants where it's basically like a platter uh, it's a, that, they, that they put all the, uh, the rest of the food on top of and you can you know, break it off. And it's made from some, some beans or something like that. I don't, I don't remember, some legumes. And is that, is that bread too? Uh, and you know, in our modern day, we have so many different ways of coming up with stuff that kind of seems like or tastes like or feels like bread that this question is extremely complicated. It's not as easy as, well, it must be wheat bread. 
what strain of wheat? It must be, you know, you know, rye, you know, it, it must, I, I, I had people ex- tell me before, they said, well, you know, back in the day, wheat bread was actually uh, expensive. So back in the time of Christ, you would have wheat bread and that would be, that would be the person who can afford wheat bread, but most people would only be able to afford barley, hence the feeding of the four or 5,000 or whatever. You've got the little barley loaves. Barley was the commoner's bread. Well, I, I don't know how frequently I've I've seen barley bread used in the in the Lord's Supper. And the question is, is God requiring a specific grain to be used for bread? And this is one of these ones that I think is worth continuing to struggle with because it's not as clear-cut as grape juice versus wine. But again, it comes back to the same theme for today. How can we be as close to God's command as possible? We're not trying to see what we can get away with. We're not trying to, you know, come up with, well, you know, technically crackers are bread and technically, you know, you know Ritz crackers. Like you're, you're not, the goal is not to see how much you can get away with and technically still be following God's command. That's, that's never a good, I mean, assuming, that's assuming you know exactly where the line is so you don't cross it. Uh, and, and, and <laughs> that's never a good idea to kind of, to test God and say, well, you know what, I'm just going to follow your command only as, in so much as, as I can, you know, as I feel like it. So in such a case, in such a case, should you use gluten-free bread? I've heard some faithful pastors say, no, it, it, it's, you don't use gluten-free bread. I've heard some pastors say, well, in, in such a case, they receive the Lord's Supper only in one kind, in, in the wine, uh, in the blood. Uh, I've heard other pastors say, you know, well, you know, you have to receive it in both kinds because Jesus said, take and eat, take and drink, and fact check, fact check true. Um, so if you can't receive it in one kind, then you shouldn't receive it in, or if you can't receive it in one kind, then you shouldn't receive it in, in either. You should do both or neither. And again, the, you know, the concept of you're not cursed if you can't receive the Lord's Supper. If you cannot partake of bread, and if bread is an essential element of the Lord's Supper, then you're not cursed for not receiving it. You just, you're not able to, you know, able to receive it. It's, it's you know, receive, a, receive other blessings as well. Um, if you're able to, obviously you should receive the bread and the wine, the blood and the body. But if you can't, then then you can't. So unfortunately for bread versus gluten-free bread versus rice bread versus potato bread versus, you know, genetically engineered, specialized, you know, they remove the gluten molecule one by one um, using sourdough bread, you know, starters and, and all these other things. This is, this is a more complicated question. And I would love to have the conversation with people because again, I've, I've, I've heard it both ways. And, and bread is more nebulously defined than wine. Another aspect of this um, I was talking with somebody before, and they were they were talking about wine. And traditionally, traditionally in the Old Testament, in the you know beginning of the New Testament time, uh, wine was actually made from two different sources, two distinct sources: grapes, one of them, obviously, yes, but the other one is figs. Fig wine was was very popular, and it would be referred to as wine, and it is a fruit of the vine as well. Figs can grow on can grow on vines, I guess. And uh, of course, the people made all these the person made these fun connections and they say, well, actually the wine at the, you know, at the Lord's Supper was fig wine. And we connect this all the way back to Genesis where Adam and Eve sewed, guess what? Fig leaf garments for themselves. And, and Christ is the perfection of that. He, you know, there's actually, you know, something that comes from figs that actually say, and then, you know, the Jesus interacting with a fig tree. And yeah, so there, there are figs in the Bible and, and there are grapes in the Bible and there's wine in the Bible. And, and <laughs> you could go down to a rabbit, you go down, down a rabbit hole in that really quick. So, but again, uh, and the question of uh, what type of bread should you use in the Lord's Supper? What type of bread should your pastor be using in the Lord's Supper? Well, first of all, it absolutely needs to be bread. So if they're like using something other than bread, they're like, well, you know, I saw that picture of somebody who's using uh, Arizona iced tea and Skittles. N- no, sorry, fam. No. <laughs> use bread, use wine. 
how you define, I mean, wine is pretty easy to define. Bread, how you define that? That's that's something that, you know, people with, with doctorates, demons, and PhDs, they can they can punch each other over and, and, and get back to me with the uh, answer on that one. But you should be using bread. If, there, if gluten-free bread is still bread, then I assume that this falls under Christian freedom that you're allowed to use it as well. Uh, but there's a bunch of different ways to make gluten-free bread. So again, I don't know. Um, all right. So those are the two big ones. Uh, wine versus grape juice, bread versus gluten-free bread. Let's move on to the actual practice of communion, the consecration of the elements, the distribution, things like that. So first things first, is it a table or is it an altar? That thing on which the elements are placed when they are consecrated, is it a table or an altar? You can say, you know, welcome to the Lord's table or the sacrament of the altar. Well, you know, uh, in Lutheran confessions, we kind of refer to it as, as both. It's kind of it's kind of both and, but not entirely. Let me explain. So we're, we're, eating, we're eating the Lord's Supper. We're gathered around a table because we are consuming the body and blood of Christ. In with and under the elements, of course. We are consuming something at a table. That's where you eat things. You eat things, you eat things on a table. You don't normally eat things off of an altar. That's, that's usually, I mean, traditional. If you go back, go back, altars are used for sacrifice. Now, the Roman Catholic... Uh, kind of understanding of this is is a lot more complicated. They'll they'll talk about the unbloody sacrifice or the resacrificing or the recelebration of the sacrifice and, and stuff like that. And I want to get away from 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 that because um, that can be possibly that can be understood correctly or that can be understood incorrectly. You are not resacrificing Christ. Christ is the once for all sacrifice. You are not cont- contributing to what Christ did on the cross. Uh, the priest is not contributing to what Christ did on the cross in the sacrifice for your sins. That is finished. It is tetelestai, Jesus says. It is finished. The sacrifice is already done. Instead, what is happening are, there, well, there's, there's, there's two main parts. There's sacrifice and sacrament. Sacrifice is, is going up to God. Sacrament is going up to you from God. A sacrifice, uh, this would be things like prayer and praise and, and adoration and, and the love of God and tithing and things like that. Um, this, this, is, this is giving to God. And we are celebrating. We are God commands us to, to receive the to receive the Eucharist, and we are sacrificing. We are sacrificing to God, kind of our our will, our our love, our prayer, our you know our celebration. That is going up to God. The body of Christ is not going back up to the Father. He's already received that perfect sacrifice. We're not re-sacrificing Christ. So, in one sense, it it, it is an altar still. It is a place around which we gather to bring up the bring up the things to God, to bring prayers like incense before the altar, to bring prayers before God. So it is an altar. It is also a table because it's around which we gather to receive the sacrament, the thing that God gave for us, a blessing given to you, for you, one might say. So, with that said, should the altar, and I'm going to use altar and table interchangeably from now on just to make things more confusing, should it be against the wall or a freestanding table? Should the pastor priest be able to walk around behind it or should it be up against the wall? Now you're going to have these, you know, people who are familiar with all kinds of church tradition, they'll say, oh, you know, it was always up against the wall until this thing and then this happened and we need to do it. Why? Why? Just because it was done this way before is not is not a good enough reason. Tradition itself is not a source of doctrine. Tradition is a means of conveyance of 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 belief. What are we confessing by putting it against the wall versus what are we confessing by putting it freestanding? Now again, the these things both these things both make sense. I would say that this is a place of Christian freedom, and it depends on what are you trying to confess. 
by placing the altar in one place or the other. If you're placing it all the way against the wall, you know, we're all facing, we're all facing the cross, we're all facing the, the crucifix, we're all facing the altar all together in communion with, with one another, and we're lifting up our prayer and praise before God. The priest stands in front of the altar facing away from the congregation facing towards the altar uh, as, as he consecrates the elements, and he's, it's like he's talking with God. Um, let's talk about if it's freestanding. The priest, rather than, or the pastor, either one, rather the same thing, rather than standing in front of, in front of the freestanding table, in front of the freestanding altar, he stands behind it. He stands with the cross to his back, with the crucifix to his back, and with the people in front of him, the elements in front of him. And in this, in this stance, while if he's facing, if he's facing the cross, if he's facing the crucifix, uh, he's, he is, he's lifting up the prayers and the thanksgiving and the adoration of the people. He's lifting that up. He's presenting it before God as, as a sacrifice. Now, again, sacrament, as he is facing the congregation and he's lifting up the, the elements, uh, the, the host and the, and the wine and, you know, consecrating, he is presenting to the congregation something from God. So this also makes perfect sense. This is a sacramental position. This is from God, through the hands of the pastor, through the mouth of the pastor, the words of God given to the people. So it flows through his back and out his front, out his, out his mouth, as he, as he says, you know, take and eat, take and drink. He says the words of institution, the words of Christ himself. So, should it be against the wall or should it be freestanding? Depends on what you're trying to confess. And you shouldn't do it just because, well, this is how they've done it before. No, you, you need a reason behind what you're doing. You should never, uh, in, in, all your, in all your liturgy, in all the things you wear, in all the things that you preach, in all of the words you use and the elements you use and the symbols and all these other things, have a reason. Do not, do not mindlessly just go through empty ritual, just throwing ritual at something with no purpose behind it. This does not glorify God. In fact, there are you know passages in the Bible that talk about how God disdains this empty ritual. Be intentional. Be mindful of the things you're doing. You are facing the congregation because you're giving them something from God, or you are facing the crucifix because you are giving God the sacrifice from the people. Be intentional. Whatever you're doing, if you have freedom in this area, do it in order and intention. Have a reason behind it. All right, next uh, next line I have. What is it? Is it body and blood, or is it symbol? I mean, this has been done to death before. It's it's. I mean, what does Jesus say? If Jesus was going to convey that this was symbol, how would he say that? If Jesus was going to convey convey that this was his body and his blood, how would he say that? And then, in the words of institution, we have Jesus saying, "This is my body, hac est corpus meum. Uh, this is my body. This is my blood." We have passages in Scripture where uh, they talk about um, they talk about. Uh, you know, eating, eating and drinking, uh, eating the bread and, and drinking and drinking the blood, or is this not a participation in, in you know in, in the body? Is this not a participation in the blood? Things like that, where we are actually participating in in the body of Christ, in the body and blood of Christ. This is this is Paul talking about this. Uh, other places, there's another passage I'd like to get to later on in First Corinthians chapter eleven, but I'm not going to get there quite yet uh, because I'm saving it up for another line item. Um, but yes, it is a body and blood of Christ. That does not mean it isn't also bread and wine. Paul refers to it. He talks about taking and eating the bread. And he, he, this is, this is my body taking, you know, and this is the bread, participating in the bread. So somehow, yes, bread, yes, body. They're both there. We don't know how. God does not explain it to us. Sometimes Lutherans like to say the body and blood are in with and under the bread. Really, we're just cheating and saying, 
it's a mystery. God never explains how exactly this miracle happens, um, but it's truly his body and blood are truly, actually, really, really for reals there. Not just a spiritual presence. It's not this is my presence. It is this is my body. This is my blood. So what is it? Body and blood or empty symbol? It is body and blood. Also, it is bread and wine. It does not cease to be bread and wine. All right, here is the next question or the next line item. Open versus closed communion. Why would a pastor prevent anyone from receiving this gift? After all, a sacrament is a holy gift from God given to his people. Why would anybody, especially fellow Christians, be prevented from receiving these things? Now, this is a complicated topic, kind of. It's a complicated topic because God never prescribes in the Bible exactly the practice of, say, catechesis and first communion and, and, and you know, working your way up to this stage where, uh, where you can receive communion. But there is good order and discipline, particularly around, around these elements. There's, uh, there's promise, but there's also warning regarding the elements of the Lord's Supper. This is where I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, and let me see, verse... Um, this is my body, this is my blood, do this remembers me. Uh, verses 27 and following. Okay, verses 27 and following. How does Paul, how does a Christian church, how is a Christian church supposed to regard communion, the body and blood of Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and following says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, <clears throat> not a symbol of the body and blood of the Lord, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person, person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we were judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, this is serious. People are getting sick and even dying as a result of receiving the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. This should be a concern for pastors. It is, in fact, loving for a pastor to prevent someone from killing themselves or hurting themselves with the Lord's Supper. Now, it may seem unloving to hear you are not in a state right now. You're, For example, if somebody is in an ongoing unrepentant sin— you should not be receiving the Lord's Supper. You are not going to receive the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner because you reject the forgiveness of Christ because you for, you refuse to repent of your sin. You will receive it in an unworthy manner, and God may curse you through it. You may suffer ill effects as a result of receiving the Lord's Supper. Is it loving, therefore, for a pastor to prevent somebody who he thinks may be hurt from receiving something that he thinks may hurt them? The answer is yes. Closed communion is loving. Now, closed communion is not prescribed as a specific, you know, process of you have to go through, you have to jump through these specific hoops before you receive communion. The pastor, his 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 role as the under shepherd of the of the congregation, as the guardian and distributor of the of the sacraments, um, he has to figure out some sort of some sort of organized way that he can protect people from hurting themselves and also make sure that everybody uh, who can be blessed by it re receives these. Now, the way that we've gone about it mostly as Lutherans is that we have a catechesis process. We have a teaching process, is that we teach people about the Lord's Prayer. We teach them one of the most important things. We teach them about the Ten Commandments. If you know what the Ten Commandments are, you know what sin is, you know you have sinned, you know you, you need 
uh, you need God's forgiveness. Uh, we teach about the Lord's Supper. You know this is the body and blood of Christ given to you for the forgiveness of your sins. So if you know what the body and blood of Christ is and what it's given for, if you know that you're a sin, a, a, a sinner, you, you know all your sins are because of the, or you know a lot of your sin because of the Ten Commandments, and you can repent of these sins and put your faith in Christ, then we have so much, we as pastors have so much more reason uh, to be able to look at you and see these outward kind of understandings and say, look, this person, this person, as far as I can tell, because no pastor can read the heart, as far as I can tell, this person will be receiving the Lord's Supper to his benefit and not to his detriment. So this is why the restrictions are often put in place. Now, this may vary. There may be some pastors who have an abbreviated sort of catechesis. When you're catechizing children, it's often different than catechizing catechizing adults. For children, it could take multiple years to get through the small catechism, for example. The small catechism is a rubric that Lutherans use to kind of to study the Lord's the Lord's Supper. Or the, yeah, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, uh, Ten Commandments, things like that. Baptism, uh, Office of the Keys, things like that. It's just kind of a, a rubric that we've we all kind of go through. But for adults, it may not take them multiple years to get through this. There are some adults who say, "Well, you know, I know this and I know this." So some adult may be coming from an Eastern Orthodox or a Presbyterian or Roman Catholic uh, background where they don't need to be taught retaught the Ten Commandments. You know, you know, you go over them and you discuss them, and, and but they know them already. So. The pastor exercises his discernment and 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 hopefully, according to God's will, um, determines if a person will receive the Lord's Supper to his benefit or to his detriment. And based on that decision, or based on that calculus, the pastor should then, you know, welcome the person to the Lord's Supper or tell the person, I'm sorry, uh, we would love to have you at the Lord's Supper, but because of these reasons, it is not in your best interest to receive it. Closed communion is not only loving— but this is, I would say that this is, this is actually commanded by God. This is actually, um, through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, pastors need to be aware of this. That this is something explained to them, so they need to be able to act on it and say, okay, I can tell a difference, you know, I can, I have some sort of restriction, some sort of rubric to determine if a, if a person should receive this or not. So, closed communion. Why, why prevent anyone from receiving the gift? Because sometimes the gift hurts the person who is not appropriately prepared to receive it. Next question is pedo-communion. This is the communion of children. This is practiced uh, traditionally in the Eastern Orthodox Church. There may be other groups that practice this as well. If we are giving gifts like baptism to everyone, you know, go and baptize the whole world, all nations, why are we withholding communion from, you know, small children? For the same reasons stated previously, how can you—I mean— this is not the same sort of restriction. It's not many of you have been baptized and you were baptized unworthily and some of you have gotten sick and even died. No, that is never given for baptism. Baptism is talked about as a new birth. Now, there are reasons why you might not want to baptize a person if they're going to go on living as an atheist and you just, you know, sneak up on them and baptize them or whatever real quick. Uh, no, <laughs> but in terms of, in terms of uh, examination, helping them with self-examination, making sure that they're, they're worthy, they're worthy uh, that they're not receiving the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, that they're worthy to receive it, they're, they're receiving it worthily. The fact of the matter is that with children, with young enough children, they, they're not capable of having this conversation. They're not capable of this sort of, uh, this sort of self-examination that the Bible prescribes for us 
this this is also true of adults. There are some adults who just do not have the the mental capacity, the mental capability. They they might have a disorder. They might be struggling with um, uh, with with something Alzheimer's or dementia or you know any other number of things. They may not be in a state where they can think as clearly as 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 is required to kind of examine themselves here. And in such a case, it is not it is not hurtful. It is not hateful to say, well, let me just give you a blessing instead of receiving the, the Lord's Supper. It is not hurtful or hateful to withhold the Lord's Supper in close communion. So in the same way that this applies to the uncatechized, this also applies to those who uh, who, are, who struggle to, to understand, whether it's through uh, a mental uh, uh, peculiarity or just because they're children. So that's why, uh, as Lutherans, we don't we don't give communion to small children. All right, next, uh, the adoration of elements. Should we put the consecrated host? Should we consecrate the body of uh, of Christ? Should we consecrate the bread? And then it's you know it's the body of Christ is there. Then should we place it in a um I forget what that staff thing is called. It's like a not the tabernacle. Oh, the tabernacle is like a different thing. Um. Whatever you put it in this thing, and everybody kind of kind of adores it together. It's called adoration. It's you know they look and they bow down before you know before this. After all, it is you know it is a body, the body of Christ is present there. So why should they not? Um, okay, so for example, when I when I'm when I'm uh, performing the rite of uh, when I'm going through the words of institution, you know this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of you know, and um, after after I say the words of institution. I hold up, I hold up the consecrated host, not because I'm holding it up as an offering to God, because again, God doesn't need to be offered his son, the Father does not need to be offered his son again, but I'm holding it up for all the congregation to see. Uh, you know, this is given, it's presented, I'm presenting the body in front of them, and then I place it down, and I kneel, and I and I bow behind, you know, behind, I'm actually, we've got a freestanding altar. I bow behind the altar because the body of Christ is now in front of me. There's a, there's, you know, the, the body of Christ is, is is actually there. So I bow down and remember. Same thing with, with the cup, with the chalice. I bow down after the consecration to acknowledge that this is the body and this is the, the blood of Christ. Now, God does not ever command in Scripture that we're supposed to take his body and blood and start a procession through the streets with it, uh, and then everybody's supposed to kind of bow down, and then we're supposed to leave it up over the course of the week or, or longer that people can come in and, you know, cross themselves and bow down before this, uh, before this consecrated element. That is never the command of God. God says, take and eat, take and drink. That's what you're supposed to do with it. Now, I reverence, I, I, I reflect for my own benefit as well, that this is the body of Christ. But the purpose is not adoration. It is not, let me take the body of Christ and rather than take and eat, like he said, stick it in, uh, you know, stick it in a display case for everybody to kind of, to kind of stare at and, and, and meditate over and all these other things. That's not what God commands to do, so that's not what I'm going to do with it. God says, take and eat, take and drink, so, so that's, that's what's happening. Take and eat and take and drink, and that's what we're going to do, do with it. We were never told to use it as a good luck charm, and this was something, I'm, I'm not saying that this is, this, for example, this was not endorsed by the Roman Catholic Church as far as I'm aware, but there were people who would come up and receive communion, um, and, and this was one of the problems of, uh, that they had with receiving communion in the hand, where you would, you would give the person the body of Christ uh, into their hand, and they're supposed to take it and place it into their mouth. Uh, and eat it because you know take and eat take and drink. But they would you know tuck it away in their coat and then they would you know bring it back home and place it on a small altar uh, in their home, which I mean kind of seems like the same thing as the the adoration of the Corpus Christi procession. But they would come home and they would treat it like a, a good luck charm. 
They would carry around the, the body of Christ in their pocket and believe that it would ward off evil. This is not what God told. He did not take, he did not say take and take and make a relic out of these things. He did not take and make a good luck charm out of these things. He said, take and eat, take and drink. So do that. Take and eat, take and drink. <laughs> you know, follow what God commands. Don't see what, you know, what you can get away with. Do what God tells you to do with the things that he gives you. So the adoration of elements, no, absolutely not. God does not command this. God, there is no indication in Scripture that God wants you to go and 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 use use the Eucharist as relics. Go around, try to you know you know touching people in the foreheads with you know take it, put it in a staff, and and, and try to cure. You know, don't stop it. Knock it off. God says, take and eat, take and drink. Do that thing that God tells you to do. Uh, all right, next bullet point. Reserving elements for next week. Okay, so this is kind of a, a, a practical thing. So uh, you consecrate the. So as a as a pastor, as a priest, I consecrate you know body and blood of Christ, uh, and and everybody goes and they receive communion, and lo and behold, uh, I have consecrated too many wafers. I have consecrated too much bread uh, to be consumed uh, consumed there. Um, one of the practices that I do is, and many churches do this, is I'll I'll take. I'll take these consecrated wafers and I'll place them in something called a pyx. It's it's a silver it's a small silver kind of vessel like a like a chest or a or a covered cup or something like that. Uh, and I'll place I'll place them in this thing and I'll leave it on the altar because it's a consecrated element. And then the next week when it's time for communion, I won't have the pyx out. These are already consecrated elements. When I'm consecrating the bread for the next week, I have these already consecrated elements set aside. Uh, set to the side, because they've already been consecrated. I'm not going to mix the unconsecrated and the consecrated together and then consecrate the whole thing. Uh, God doesn't give us a prescription for what to do here, but it seems to me that this is this is the best practice. God doesn't say that, you know, the, the, the bread and the wine become unconsecrated after a certain time limit or anything like that. So if I've got the consecrated body of Christ and I can't be consumed right now, then my goal is for it to be consumed later. But as far as I know, it remains the consecrated body of body of Christ. So uh, the the next the next Sunday rolls around. You know, I consecrate uh, some more unconsecrated wafers, and then then after the consecration, I bring out the already consecrated wafers in in the picks from the previous week, and hopefully we consume all of these. I don't like this idea that they're just kind of recycled over and over and over, and you always have leftovers. It's it's good practice, it's good order to, to try to consecrate only only the amount of bread and wine that will be consumed for the, for the service. Uh, because again, God says, take and eat, take and drink. So, and he doesn't really tell us what to do if there's, if, if there's extra. Um, I believe that, that the practice that I follow is a reverent one. I believe that there that it is more irreverent to take these consecrated elements and just kind of chuck them back in with the rest of the, the bread, because that, that, that is what unconsecrated wafers are. That is just just bread. So to take consecrated elements and mix them, mix them up with unconsecrated elements seems to, it seems, I mean, again, why are you doing it? Are you acknowledging that there's a distinction between the things that God has consecrated and the things that he has not? Um, it seems to overlook that thing. And I know that there's a lot of pastors that do it. And I'm not going to outright say, well, this is a sin. You should never mix together consecrated and unconsecrated wafers. But you need to think about that. Why are you doing that? What can that possibly be confessing? Is that, again, how is that as close as you can be to God's command? Is that as close as you can be to God's com- uh, intent? Or is that just convenient to kind of mix together all the bread and, 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 and put it for next week? Um, for wine... I really, it, it takes two seconds to consume any, 
any consecrated wine after the service. So this isn't, um, you know, chewing through thirty wafers is it takes a, a bit more time than uh, than consuming the rest the rest of the wine, uh, and there is usually far less leftover wine than there are wafers. I don't know. I just uh, sometimes, yeah. People show up in the middle of service. You have to you have to prepare for more than uh, more than are in the pews at the beginning of the service. But again, I don't want to say that this is adiaphora. There's a degree of Christian freedom in how you handle this, but you need to be intentional about what you're doing. Um, all right, this comes to the final point: the disposal slash recycling of consecrated elements. So I talked about the recycling of consecrated elements. This is when um, uh, when you've got you got consecrated elements or whatever, and you just chunk, chuck them in. Like you consecrate the wine, and then not all the wine is drunk, so you just pour it back in the bottle. It just does not strike me as the most reverent practice. Now, again, there's no specific prescription from God on this matter, but we want to we want to be as close, we want to be as reverent as possible. We want to not just you know throwing empty ritual, but we want to say, okay, this is the blood of Christ, and I'm mixing it in with regular wine. Am I saying that there's no difference? Is this, you know, even if that's not what I'm confessing, is that what the appearance of what I'm doing is, that I'm mixing consecrated, the blood of Christ, with unconsecrated wine as if they are the same thing, they're one and the same? Uh, Yeah, it just, be intentional about what what you're doing. As for the disposal, now this is is a, a similar thing. This is one of the reasons why I hate, hate plastic cups. Because what do you do when you've got these plastic cups? Everybody comes around. You've got the consecrated blood of Christ. Go, you know, we'll consecrate the wine, blood of Christ. It's in the plastic cups. People drink the drink the wine out of the cups, and what do they do? They throw the cups in the garbage. And naturally, the cups still contain still contain some degree of the consecrated some degree of the blood of Christ. You're throwing the blood of Christ in the garbage. Does that seem to you like the most reverent way of handling the blood of Christ? This this sacred thing, this holy important thing that God has given you, to chuck it in the garbage, to put it in a disposable vessel and throw it away. Now, it would be fantastic if we had, you know, gold, everybody had diamond and ruby encrusted golden chalices and all these other things. And there's all kinds of good, you know, um, science behind the antiseptic pro- or the antimicrobial uh, properties of, of things like silver, gold, uh, copper, um, brass, things like that. And reasons why, you know, practical reasons why why we should be using precious metal uh, vessels. But not everybody can afford these things. So, oh, okay. Uh, if you've got if you've got glass, well, at least for glass, you're reusing it. You're washing it out, and you're not throwing away. You're not throwing away the consecrated elements. You're treating them reverently with respect, as if it was actually the blood of Christ. One might say. Well, okay, so you're you're you know you're a sacristan, you're altar guild, and you're in the sacristy, and you're washing out, you're washing out all these all these you know the communion ware. You're washing out the communion ware because that's that's what you do is you, you know you clean up after the supper. Now you've washed you've washed these these glasses out. What about the water? Because it's now been mixed with you know it's now been mixed with the with the, the consecrated elements. It's now been mixed with the, the blood of Christ. Now. Again, again, the most the most practical thing to do is when we're washing dishes, we you know we check everything in the in the dishwasher, or we run it, or we wash everything and just dump it down the sink. But again, I, I would ask you why why are you doing this? Are you doing this because it's the most convenient? Are you considering, you know, what elements you're actually handling right here? If this is the blood of Christ, what is the most reverent way? Because you know you have to you have to wash the glassware, you have to wash the communionware. What is the most reverent way? 
of disposing of the blood of Christ? What is the most reverent way? Now, there's a couple of solutions. Again, this is not prescribed in Scripture that you have to do it this way, but there's a couple of good solutions that I think people have come up with over the years. One of them, uh, what is the name for it? It's a uh, sacra, it's not a sacristan, it's, oh boy, I just had it written down. (laughs) Uh, Let me see. I think, yeah, sacrarium, that's what it is. It's called a sacrarium. And this is a designated sink where... um, where you're not dumping the blood of Christ into the sewage system. You're not dumping the blood of Christ into where you flush the toilet. The blood of Christ is being washed down, and, and it's traveling through a pipe, and it's going directly into the ground. Uh, and, and this is, a, you know, Lutherans and Roman Catholics both often have these set up in their, in their sacristies, where they have a special designated sink where everything that's poured into it will go through the pipe and, and be deposited uh, out, out, out in the ground, you know, somewhere, uh, somewhere outside of the church. Uh, another solution that I've seen that works, okay, you don't have a special a special plumbing situation worked out, get a get a big bowl. Get a big bowl. It's actually easier to wash if you're using individual glasses, um, shot glasses. Uh, get a get a big bowl to wash them all around. Get a pitcher to, to kind of or something like that to contain to contain all, all the you know the blood of Christ in the water and, and, and the washings. And don't just dump it down the sink. Wash, wash the communion ware in it, and then take that bowl, take that pitcher. Go out to a designated location, someplace that animals aren't going to defile, that people aren't going to be trampling over. Um, maybe you, you have a plant. Maybe you have a, you know, uh, at, at our church we've got we've got one olive tree, and this is the designated location that will receive the 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 water that contains the consecrated blood of Christ. We have a special designated location. Now, again, this is not commanded in Scripture. But the idea that we're we're communicating is, look, we believe that this is the blood of Christ. We are disposing of it in a reverent manner. You know, we can't logistically we can't consume this. We're not going to lick out all the all the shot glasses. But um, this is this is where what we're doing to kind of to kind of dispose of these consecrated elements in a in a respectful and reverent manner. So all of this, this entire this entire episode, uh, again, I want to I want to bring back around to the theme of how can we be as close to God's command as possible, not what can we get away with. And in all of these practices, in the communion practices, whether you're a pastor, whether you send this to your pastor, whether you talk to your pastor about this, please do. Please talk to your pastors about communion. Why do they do the things that they do? What is the motivation? What are they communicating? Please, please talk to your pastors. They would love to talk to you about these things. Uh, It's not going to bother them. Um, Going through all of this, be intentional. What does the Bible say? How can we best follow what God commands? How can we best honor what God intends? How can we best communicate to the rest of the world, you know, that the, these are the sacred holy things of God and we're treating them in a reverent and respectful manner? How can we best protect people who may receive the Lord's Supper to their, to their detriment? How can we be loving? How can we be how can we honor one another? How can we honor God the, the most? These should all be things that undergird your communion, your communion practices. None of it should be empty ritual. We do it just because. And none of it should be, you know, flippant and disrespectful. Well, well, this is, this is inconvenient, or this is, I don't like the taste of wine, so I'm going to use grape, grape soda. You know, none of it should be for, 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 for stupid reasons like that. <laughs> this is important. This is important. Treat it as such. And let's say you go to your parish and, and, and you listen, you're one of the six people who listens to this episode. You go to your parish 
uh, and you've never before paid attention to what goes on in, in what the altar guild does, what the sa- what goes on in the sacristy, what goes on when when the pastor is is doing the words of institution, and how he handles the vessels, and how you know these things that happen. And now you pay attention to these things, and you say, "Wow, look at how much my pastor loves God and loves his people." that he behaves in such a way that's evident to everyone. Thanks be to God for such a faithful pastor who cares so much about the things that are so important. So yeah, um, thank you to, uh, to everybody who's, who's, who's listened to this, this whole thing so far. Uh, God bless you all and take care.